hitherto uh, mentioning the Northman on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> I well, said, you, grab well, it. you spoiled it. That was going to be the tease, but okay. Oh, dude, I didn't mean to spoil it. I just meant to say that I'm drinking a seltzer now because I ran out of lager. <laughs> like a true Viking. Uh, Hello, everyone, and welcome to Block Devices, episode 26. We've officially made it to alphabet length. That's something. I don't know. I keep trying to make comparisons to these numbers, and no one seems to notice all the bad jokes that I'm making. But at least our commentary is good. Maybe y'all suck around for that. Wait, please, where are you going? Please stick around. Uh, My name is Brandon King, and I'm one of your bad joke hosts today. Alongside Noah Guzman, my collective co-host for today. Noah, how are you doing today? feeling pretty amazing brandon this is episode 26 that means we are three episodes hotter spicier sweeter than the 23 flavors included in dr pepper uh today i will be enjoying a nice tall brew as we explore some viking tales um some wolf tales and some magical tales so brandon why don't you kick it off and remind the people why they are here what our show provides quick fourth wall break because you guys can't see noah has a giant logger in front of him uh tying into two topics today that we'll get to it's tasty i'll take his word for it of course if you guys are new to the show uh movie reviews tv news all things all things in the world of uh entertainment news and things like that we've been delayed for the past couple of weeks i had covid and i was also just very tired but we're going to move on from that we're talking about movies today and tying in to our beer loving uh co-host over here we have Two Norse stories to cover today. We'll get to the bigger one with obviously the Northman review that we have later on. But first and foremost, Noah, what is the trio that every Marvel fan has been begging for the last basically year, if not several months? The new teaser trailer. It's not the official trailer, but it is the teaser for Love, sorry, Thor, Love and Thunder, um, which will be arriving in early July. Um, that is finally released. And man, is that a trailer worth discussion? Because Taiko Atiti is back. He's going to be playing... Um, a character in his own film as uh, Thor, I believe his name, or uh, yes, Tiger is, is Thor. Yeah, no, he's Thorg. That's his name, right? Thorg with the G at the end. No, it's Korg. I was making. Oh, it's joke. Korg. Oh. It, we reviewed our flag means death. Tycho is getting jacked. He could. He really is, and if he if he didn't blow me as away as Blackbeard before, like I, I can't wait to see even his small portrayal as his character alongside uh, Chris Hemsworth's Thor because. Uh, this new teaser shows us that Thor is going to be traveling not only to um, a realm of like these huge giants being um, being in front of him. Like he's facing new colossal sized enemies. He's being more in like the God setting, which we have been like deprived of um, in recent years because of Thor's placement in the MCU, which is typically just alongside uh, the Avengers. Well, now we're going back to Asgard and now we get to see more of the development of Sorry, this is new Asgard, of course, as well, because we have King Valkyrie uh, and how... Not Queen. That's right. We have King Valkyrie, who I'm so happy to see Tessa Thompson uh, take back on this role, take back on this title, and to see the development of Valkyrie as a character as they are now the leader of new Asgard. Uh, We did only get shots of Valkyrie in, like, suit attire, so I can't wait to see battle armor Valkyrie and to see how she really turns up um, to fight because the villain in this film, uh, we didn't get pictures of them yet or, like, any videos, but they are called, uh, I believe it's called the God Slayer or the God Butcher. 
It is Gore the God Butcher, and that actually ties into the synopsis that we also got because we didn't know what this movie was about. Uh, following the events of Avengers Endgame, of course, in 2019, Thor, once again, as you mentioned, played by Chris Hemsworth, he's attempting to find inner peace, but he has to return to action and recruit Valkyrie and Korg and Jane Foster, who we had not seen since, well, really since Endgame, but really since Thor Dark World, depends if you buy the deleted scenes. Either way, she is back as the mighty Thor to stop Gore the God Butcher, played by Batman himself, Christian Bale. Oh, yeah. And if you got the title like The God Butcher, then in this movie, I knew Hela was bad, but I want to see, like, I want to see these gods ripped apart because that'll make me believe that this is the God Butcher. This this person, this character can live up to that title. And to have Christian Bale behind it, <laughs> that's, that's just going to be a joy to watch. And uh, I hope that we still get some glimpses of his... You know, maybe he'll just lend the voice to the character, but I hope that through the um, facial capture or, um, you know, motion capture, I hope that we get to see some of Bale in in this new character. There was a, there was actually an action figure leak that shows the idea of what Gore is supposed to look like, but we have not heard, at least as far as my knowledge, whether it's going to be mocap or practical. I'm hoping it's practical. Like, I want to see bald, like, monk-like Christian Bale, especially if you're going... We see a lot in the trailer of like images pr- pulled right out of uh, Jason Aaron and Asadra the Explorer Room, which you should all read. It's freaking epic. Uh, but at the same time, like if you're taking that incarnation of Gore, which is basically the only one at this point, Gore is going to be terrifying. And I think Christian Bale, in his all you know his all faceted acting ability that we've gotten so familiar with, whether it's Batman, whether it's Ford v Ferrari, whether it's you know uh, the mechanic, three ten to Yuma, three ten to Yuma, absolutely, like. He can be menacing in a way that can fit into a Thor mythology, specifically a Taika Waititi Thor mythology. And this trailer, like, you're right, it doesn't give us a lot. Um, great use of Sweet Child of Mine. I'm not going to argue with that one bit. Uh, but it's not a lot, but it gives us enough and it satisfies fans like me to be like, okay, good, this is happening. It's still sticking to July and we don't have to wait too long for it. We had our original trilogy, but this is kind of the first, am I correct in saying this, like the first Marvel hero to have you know, a continued storyline beyond that trilogy. I think that's true. Yeah, he's um, the first to have a fourth movie. Yes. And that's incredible because we even we're picking up hopefully right off of Endgame when Thor travels away with the guardians of the galaxy and they're Our included, we, we didn't they're included in this teaser. We have um, Chris Pratt, who's playing star Lord <laughs> in a very uh, comedic sequence uh, that, that just continues to showcase like this rivalry between Peter Quill and Thor, which I hope that they totally milk in this movie. But that being said, the teaser gave me the impression that this, the Guardians won't be there for the length of the film. Did you get the same vibe? Oh, definitely. I, I would definitely put $5 that they're not going to show up for more than 10 minutes of the movie, if that. Right. And then we are very limited on our screen time uh, spent with Jane Foster as she is the mighty Thor, because that is the closing image that you have in this official teaser. And that just excites me even more because clearly they're, you know, they're, they're holding their hand when it comes to what they're willing to show with that reveal. And, Oh, I just, it gets me so amped up for what this movie is really going to deliver. Um, not only from Taika Waititi, but also just this, this continued like evolution of Thor as a character, because he's one of our heroes who we've seen adapt over the years, ever since his first origin film. And even to this, uh, this fourth one, uh, I, I'm just always going to be excited to see new ways to reinvent the character. Let me ask you this real quick. The past three Thor films have all been directed by different people. You had Kenneth Braun directing the first one, you had Alan Taylor do The Dark World, and then you had Waititi come in and shake everything up with Ragnarok. Do you think, even though Waititi has gone and done other things up to this point, Jojo Rabbit, Our Flag Means Death, all that, do you think it was a good idea for Marvel to keep him around for this, or would you have liked to take someone, take that tone, and do something else with it that we've already set the precedent for with the franchise? 
it's kind of leaving me like in a state of, um, well, for one uncertainty, because for me, four was really defined with that, what TT portrayal, like that's when I felt that Crims Hemsworth, like really embodied the role completely. And like, it, it, he was, he was given more than just, um, I don't know. He was given more than just the God of thunder to work off of. And he was given like a comedic take to have with the character. And I really appreciated that. And I wholeheartedly believe that came from what TT and to keep him with four on this journey, like who knows if we'll get a film after love and thunder, but if this is what TT's own trilogy, I'd appreciate that. I'd throw flowers at it. Like I have high hopes for this. And even though, you know, the marketing didn't come out for like, now it's only two months before the release date. Like, I hope that's not a bad sign, but um, no, I think it was an excellent move. I'm, I'm more than happy to see what TT continue with this character. Uh, so long as he stays true to uh, pulling in, you know, references where they're needed and appreciating every character in their own right. On the one hand, I am all for giving new voices to the Marvel Cinematic Universe as it becomes more, I don't want to say homogenous, but more structured into the idea of what the MCU is. And I love what that structure is, but I also love when, you know, James Gunn or, you know, the Russo brothers come in and shake things up and do what they do, uh, or what Nia DaCosta is going to do with the Marvels, which I cannot wait. That being said, yeah, Waititi didn't just reinvent Thor with Ragnarok, he recontextualized Thor in a way that a lot of people just viewed as, oh God, look how wacky the space stuff is. And when it's actually like, as with a lot of Waititi's work, there is a darkness and an emotional pining to it that I think has really settled into where the character is going. And I really hope gets explored with this because I love the idea of after the events of Endgame, we find a Thor who is so content, who is content with himself and then has to be pulled back in, which could be such a cliche, but I think for a character like Thor is actually going to be a really interesting development, especially when you throw, oh yeah, your ex is back and she has all of your power. What does that mean? Like, I, I'm curious if that will bring up not like old wounds, but like old tendencies from those first two Thor movies that like, no, he is still the same guy, but he's clearly evolved to a point of more maturity and more complexity. So I have full faith in YTD to, to do this. I have no doubt he'll make, an, he'll make an incredible film. And yeah, the first teaser, this is a good first sign. Natalie Portman was out after uh, The Dark World. So oh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it took this film or if it took like, you know, there was a cameo, you know, of, of sorts in Endgame, but if this film really provides her that pedestal to shine as um, the mighty Thor, then I'm just so happy they got her back because I, I wasn't done seeing Portman in the MCU. So, you know, uh, we're charging ahead and we're, we're moving, moving with faith. Uh, and like, yeah. let, let, let's be clear. Yes. Portman has not been in the MCU. So you like, you can, and even the character of Jane, I know has had detractions in the past. So like, I get it. If you're skeptical about this, all I can tell you is go read the Jason Aaron Thor run because it's awesome. And she has a lot of development in that in Waititi's hands, that context of, again, no spoilers for the comics, but like her runs with cancer and like her own conflicts with Odinson, like those things are fascinating to explore, let alone this incarnation of Thor and Jane. Of course, Thor Love and Thunder is set to be released theatrically, exclusively theatrically, I should say, uh, July 8th. So we don't have to wait that long to go see it. And of course, we will be reviewing it for this podcast. So stay tuned for that. We are going to move into our second main topic for today. Uh, if you guys have not heard, uh, the John Wick franchise is expanding. We're getting a TV spinoff with the Continental on Stars coming sometime next year. We are getting the fourth and fifth installments of the series coming next year. And I believe the year after. I don't know if they've concerned Chapter 5. But there's also been a spinoff in the works called The Ballerina. Well, this past weekend at CinemaCon, we got our confirmation of who is going to be the ballerina, and it's none other than Ana de Armas, of course, from No Time to Die, Blade Runner 2049, uh, Knives Out, a bunch of other things, the upcoming Blonde, which is, sounds fascinating, which is going to be playing Marilyn Monroe. Uh, 
announced at CinemaCon that Ana de Armas is set to lead the spinoff with series star Keanu Reeves set to produce and still rumored to cameo, although there was no confirmation on that. I have no doubt he will as long as the, the timelines match up. Uh, we also got confirmation that Underworld and Total Recall's Len Wiseman will direct the project. The film will center around de Armas' character as a trained assassin and titular ballerina who sets to kill those who have murdered her family in the past. Uh, ballerina is set to be cut in production this summer. No release date has been set Noah, you know, we've established on the show, we're both fans of Anadaramus, but we haven't talked really about the John Wick movies. What has your experience been with this franchise? Are you excited by the little bits of info we've gotten about Ballerina? And is Anadaramus at this point in her career the right choice for this? I've always been a John Wick fan. I think uh, I didn't see John Wick in theaters. But um, I did see John Wick once it was available for VOD and then, of course, attending theaters for Chapter 2 because I was a fan. And then again, Chapter 3, especially with Halle Berry attached, like this is a franchise that I was um, I was riding behind, like with with a lot of cheer. But after I realized that 3 wasn't a conclusion story and that they were actually going to spread it out even further, I think I became <laughs> I became kind of winded because I feel like I was so burnt out or not burnt out, but I was so uh the, just the movie industry has been so consistent with trilogies that I was uh, kind of accustomed to it. So when it came out that we have more to s- explore with John Wick, I kind of just said, okay. Um, and then we have news of this series you mentioned called The Continental. And then we have this spinoff with the Armas leading as ballerina. And I'm just like, whoa, like I not never would I have imagined the John Wick franchise, like ex exploring these different avenues for um, their universe. But I'm, I mean, I'm happy that they're doing it because um, for one, it's another title for the Adamas to showcase their acting uh, or sorry, their action acting potential, which I loved as Paloma in um, No Time to Die. That being said, we're exploring a series where the Admas is a trained assassin set out to kill those who murdered her family. And the title is Ballerina. Now tell me this doesn't sound familiar of like a, of a former ballerina turned assassin who is exacting revenge, but has these like almost dance like elements to their style. Like immediately I just go, okay, black widow or, you know, other instances of an assassin of an assassin type female who has roots in dance or ballerina. And in my head, I'm like, is it beat to death? Probably, but I'm interested in the title. You know, it is, it is an enticing title. So uh, we don't have many details around it, but uh, with those members attached, I think that it's worth looking out for. And until we get a trailer, I mean, there isn't too much to say on this, you know? I don't have much experience with Len Weissman movies and I don't love what I've seen. Uh, at least in contrast to like what Chad Stahelski has done with this franchise. Like for context, I was one of the people who, like many of you, was probably in 2014 going, "What's this weird Keanu Reeves action movie? Is it okay? It's like a it's like a gun barrel poster, cool." And then everyone was talking about it like it was greatest thing ever. And then it made my honorable mentions for the best films of the 2010s because like I genuinely think it has changed action for better and for worse, but it has made an impact in ways that I don't think any of us were expecting. Much less just being an amazing movie. Two and three were solid. They had their positive points. I enjoyed them both thoroughly. I'm really excited for what four can deliver. Uh, Rina Sawayama's going to be in that, and I cannot wait to see what she can do as an actress, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, Ballerina, I remember hearing about and being curious, but like you, it was that thing of, okay, a Russian ballerina, we assume it's going to be Russian, a Russian ballerina who gets trained by the KGB and goes to kill off her vengeance, and oh, yay, haven't we seen this a dozen something times? But it's Ana de Armas who, in my opinion, has not been bad in anything I've seen her in. Like, she just has that thing as a screen presence who you're just constantly bewitched by whatever she is doing on screen, especially in the hands of great directors like a Ryan Johnson, like a Denis Villeneuve. 
And I think in the hands of Weissman, I'm worried, but I'm more, put it this way, I am more excited for this than I would have been before had she not been attached. So if that was the goal of this announcement CinemaCon, great. I'm not, I, I need to see a full trailer first. I need to see who else is attached first. Let me see more. We are going to move on then to our third and final topic of the day. It's probably our biggest topic out of everything, or at least it pertains to the most of all the topics. Uh, if you guys have been paying attention, at least in the last couple of weeks, Netflix is not in the greatest of graces or in the greatest of places, really. Uh, we are not business experts on the show. We don't claim to be, but we're going to try and break down just some of the things that have been happening with the backlash and stock losses that have been happening because of, let's just say, some controversial decisions. Uh, in the past couple of weeks, the company has cut resources to a lot of divisions, including their Tadam editorial board that hired a lot of journalists. Fourth wall break, we are both journalists, so we hold a personal stake in some of this, um, along with a lot of their marketing wings, their uh, their business divisions. Most notably, however, was the laying off of animation head Phil Rinda and the asking of several shows as a result in their animation department. Uh, Roald Dahl's Twits was getting an adaptation. That's not happening anymore. Jeff Smith's Bone, which is one of the most beloved independent comics of all time, that was in development for a long time. It's not happening anymore, at least not on Netflix. Uh, and if, there's actually a really in-depth report from The Wrap that goes into detail about the space around the animation department, specifically citing the Boss Baby television show as the gold standard for them. That is a whole thing. I encourage you to read the article. It's actually really fascinating. This also comes after announcing price hikes on all of their current subscription plans after a reported 200,000 customers dropped the subscription service in the first quarter of 2022. That's been attributed to everything from password sharing, which Netflix is apparently cracking down on, to lack of ad revenue, which Netflix is also looking into, to even the Russian-Ukrainian invasion, where Russian subscribers are dropping the service because of other reasons. In addition, certain shows like Space Force, of course, the uh, Office pastiche in Space with Steve Carell, and Pretty Smart with Emily Osmond, those are among the shows that have been outright canceled. Insiders are saying that that is not going to stop anytime soon, that reorganizations are going to keep continuing in the next few months while Netflix tries to figure this out. They are still leading the world in subscription rates. They still have 220 million subscribers worldwide, but these are, <laughs> let's just say they have not been taken kindly by a lot of fan bases, specifically in animation circles that I run in. There is a lot of fury directed at Netflix right now, and... Fair enough, granted. Noah, over to you. Um, we are not business experts on this show, but this is really fascinating from an editorial and content standpoint level. What do you gather from all of this? I'm not surprised that they're like, we're going to crack down on password sharing. Well, how the hell do you expect people to enjoy the floods of content that are coming not only from your premier streaming subscription, which, by the way, hasn't like released... I mean, I'm trying to think of the major like um, announcement of titles that people have been drooling over. Like, if anything, I, I feel like lately I've only become interested in Netflix because for one, they dropped a new season of Elite, which I'm a big fan of, um, but we don't cover that in the pod. And then the second one was also Ozark, which possibly we'll cover that in the pod in the future, but who knows for now. But other than that, I mean, the last Netflix original that I found myself like in completely um, like... I don't know, like in, in fan of was the Adam project. And had we not covered it on this pod, I'm not sure if I would have explored it like that, but you know, it pays to some news later, but that I'm happy that I've seen the Adam project. But that being said, you just have other subscription services that are delivering premier content that are worth conversation that are worth um, gushing over that fans. I mean, I think are more willing to subscribe to over Netflix because where where has all the original content come from that has really 
made it made an impact on audiences worldwide. I don't know if they have that. When it when it comes to conversation around subscription services, we're talking to HBO Max and lately Paramount Plus. So I'd be interested to see what Netflix's moves are because the only moves and only news I hear about are them upping the price. Um, now they're trying to crack down on password sharing. How do you expect us all to enjoy your services? So I mean, you know damn right I password share <laughs> because like what kind of question is that Netflix? Um, yeah, I mean, that's all I have to say. I look at this and I kind of just like raise my fist and shake it because it, it just feels like this this big entity is realizing that some of their moves may not have been as smart as they thought. And uh, I mean, I hopefully this results in, I don't know, are they going to cancel more like heartfelt series that fans actually want more of or you know what are they going to do so sure netflix is something to watch but it's obviously not losing the streaming race as it has so many subscribers still but once they announce that um that crackdown on password sharing it'd be interesting to see if any of the other platforms would follow suit that is an interesting question i don't think so i think especially as of right now like a lot of those services luckily have a queued have made decisions to acquire a library and a fan service and a sense of community within their streaming service for as much as like giant corporations can to be able to maintain, uh, I think, progress on that. That being said, as far as just the actual issues go, this is really stupid. Um, I, I don't mean like I don't care. I mean, I genuinely care about this. I just think it's a stupid decision on many levels. For one thing, the animation, that, please go read the rap article. There are interviews with a lot of people in the animation world who are at Netflix. To, now to, and as a matter of fact, go read the article about the dumb crews who were mostly journalists of color who got drafted into Netflix to be like, hey, let's do this exciting, cool thing together to like promote cool content. And then months later, oh, sorry, we don't care about you because the boss baby is more important. Like that's so stupid and ignorant and just it, it makes my blood boil on a really deep corporate, like anti-corporate kind of level from that kind of perspective. Let alone just the fact that I'm a, fan, I'm a fan of all this. Like, I wanted to see that bone adaptation. I don't care about Roald Dahl, but like, I wanted to see like other things in that sphere. And like, Space Force, like, that is a show that was just starting to get a fan appeal, let alone the bad critics' reactions. But Netflix has been doing this for a long time where they will just outright cancel things. They're a little bit turning into NBC a little bit, where NBC will just, you know, we, we talked about that when we talked about uh, La Brea, where they'll just outright cancel things sometimes. And Netflix is turning into a bit of that where they'll like, they have all the resources in the world. They have all the creators in the world and they just do nothing with it. And then let alone the password sharing stuff, which is that's not going to stop your subscriber losses. Your subscriber losses are happening because you're making decisions in your company and in your content that your fans don't want to see. Frankly, it's been like, this is an entirely, you know, maybe it's related. Okay. It's like a, it's, it's loosely related, but I'm thinking about how they've done releases recently where you know, being involved in social media. Yes. I have an account and I will look up what's trending and I'll try and be involved in the entertainment conversations. Netflix has yet to explore a week by week release, which has proven to be successful when it comes to social conversations with um, series like euphoria, which I'm tuned into on HBO max, um, whether it was Hulu releasing uh, murders in the build only murders in the building. Like, Hell, Even- Halo is not getting good reviews, and we'll talk about it later, but like, Halo is not getting good reviews. I hear more about that than I have Russian Doll Season 2. And completely under the radar that Russian Doll Season 2 even dropped because their content plan or release strategy is not as effective as maybe initially thought, especially now that they have competitors who keep me interested weeks and weeks on end because they're not doing 
complete season drops. Like I appreciated Prime Amazon Prime Videos batch releases when it came to um forgive me, uh Vox Machina, which we covered on the pod. That I felt could keep you in tune for the conversation and keep you excited for those uh, upcoming episodes. But I just watched the second half of Ozark season four and, you know, yeah, there's a conversation going on right now, but they dropped seven additional episodes, I believe. And so if next week I hear crickets about it, I mean, it's their own fault. This could be, this is a huge show that I think could last converse that could have conversations lasting months after the fact, but Unfortunately, you know, there's just not that conversation happening when it comes to Netflix releases. Would you agree, Brandon? And that's their big blockbuster shows like an Ozark, like a Stranger Things, which will unfortunately probably have the same result in the media sphere that we're in, despite the fact that it's Stranger freaking things. Uh, but at the same time, like you're right. When Moon Knight is getting more traction and I've heard more, I've heard more consistently good things about Ozark, but I've heard more things in general about Moon Knight because of that weekly setup. And Bridgerton. I could tell you yes. people talking to me about Bridgerton season two. I've seen season one and I, and I was, I was happy about it. I, I was tuned in because I wanted to see season two when the whole season dropped and I looked at it and I was like, Ooh, like I should start it, but it's like a whole season. So uh, like, it, I don't know, from my viewer perspective, kind of intimidated me. Had it been weekly, you know, I don't know. Some people don't want the weekly Brandon. <laughs> what kind I, of I, argument are we making? I will say, I think this is pertaining a lot to TV and to series content. I don't think film content is going to be as affected as we are. Like, I think Guillermo del Toro is still going to have his fine deal. I think there's going to be other creators who like have their deals with Netflix and that's not really going to change. I think Netflix is still going to, you know, support the creators as they have. But as far as like series and like expanded content, you're right. They have some serious moves to make, and these are not the moves to be making them, especially at a time when they are vulnerable. Like, they don't want to admit it because they're Netflix, but they are vulnerable in the streaming wars that we are currently in. Cool us down from that. Let's hop into our quick hits. This is the portion of the show where we each take one, maybe two topics. We, we narrow it down to a minute. Maybe we don't have time for a full discussion, but we give you a minute spiel of a thing that's going on that we're passionate about. So, Noah, if you don't mind going first... All right. Thank you, Brandon. So we will be talking on my quick hit about a young actor named Walker Scoble. So you may recognize the name from The Adam Project, where Scoble uh, portrayed a younger Ryan Reynolds. Both of them were named Adam. There's some time travel. There's some family action in there. It's um, a hell of a good time if you haven't seen it. Uh, that is on Netflix. And uh, Scoble is actually casted in the title role for Disney Plus's new series, Percy Jackson. Uh, it is based on the Rick Riordan series of books, of course, the title um, Percy Jackson pertains to all the series, but the one that we will be introduced to is The Lightning Thief. So we've seen previous live action adaptations with Logan Lerman filling, you know, the live action shoes. Well, now we have Scoble, who is, I say, hopefully a truer and more accurate portrayal of the character as it is explored across this new TV series. We'll have so much more time with the character as it is across a series and not like a 90-minute film. And uh, Scoble only being 13 really matches well with the Percy Jackson character itself. So uh, until they have additional cast announcements, um, uh, so far I am at least interested in hearing more. Um, I don't know if I'll be writing strong for it, but after <laughs> personal news, after being in the musical, I mean, I am a big Percy Jackson fan now. And uh, with Riordan attached to write for the series pilot, I think that we have something that's going to be uh, very uh, true to the source material. So that's something to look out for. Walker Scoble, we are definitely looking out. And that is time. <laughs> I'm probably over, but that was worth sharing. Brandon, you over to you for our quick hit. 
you are, and you did not mention that James Bobbin is directing. I do want to ask you real quick. Did you see the video of Walker Scoble getting the news? I saw the video of Walker Scoble reciting Deadpool 2's <laughs> Ryan Reynolds monologue, <laughs> but I didn't see what right. you're talking about. What is that? I will send you the video, but it's basically him on call with Rick Riordan getting the role, and he's wearing like a Camp Half-Blood shirt, like he's got the whole thing, and you're like, yeah, that's Percy, good for him. This is somebody who's so young and already established in the industry that if they stick with this and Disney Plus doesn't scrap it, this has the potential to stick with Scoble as an actor for nearly a decade of the industry, so... Yeah, Disney's got some pressure on them, and we're just going to give them benefits out for now. Um, let's start on to mine in three, two, one. So as many of you know, I am a giant fan of CW's Arrowverse, so much so that I managed to convince Samantha and Corvaya and Melanie Rogoff, come on, talk for a half an hour about Supergirl's ending. That's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about two other shows ending, and we're very sad about it. And a tragic move for fans, Batwoman Season 4, Legends Tomorrow Season 8, they are not happening. Uh, the CW announced that both shows would not be returning, despite their early renewals, that those shows would not be. Uh, both Legend showrunner Kido Shimizu and Batwoman showrunner Caroline Dries both put out statements on Twitter. Essentially, they thanked fans in the network. They thanked their time on the series and, you know, things like that. Uh, there was also a ratings report that I have not been able to confirm, but if it's true, it means that both shows had higher ratings overall last year than Riverdale, which is getting renewed for, I believe, season six, which is fascinating to me, especially when you consider the dynamic that the CW apparently is being sold to Nexstar because it's never been profitable. That's a whole thing, and you should definitely go look it up. Uh, as of right now, for Arrowverse fans, both The Flash and Superman and Lois are set for renewal. Naomi and Stargirl are still up in the air, though they both might go over to HBO Max. I'm a fan of both shows. I'm sad for both. I hope Legends specifically gets continuation. And if it doesn't, well, it was a really neat experiment while lasted in time. I'm thankful that you covered that CW news because across my Twitter feeds, I've just seen whether it was new casting announcements for Batwoman, who I think the, the lead has been, um, the cast has changed for the lead across the different seasons. And, you know, there's so many conversations happening around that. And then just to pull the plug and say it's canceled. I mean, and you're someone who has been covering Legends of Tomorrow, like, Tell me, tell the, tell our listeners how often you've been covering those updates, like those episodes. I will fully admit I have not been catching up on as much as I should, which means I am part of the problem. That being said, uh, Batwoman was taking some really interesting risks, especially in recasting with Javisha Leslie, who has been really excellent, and I really appreciate what she's done. With Legends, it has gone completely off the rails, and I have been all for it. Again, regardless, it is the idea of... If that ratings report is true, then you have a giant fan base out there and really cool storylines and a really great sense of community with those shows, and you're just axing them. And in an era where every network is looking for content, that's disturbing to me. So, And it also sucks for the fans, because like you, I've just seen all like the Save Legends hashtags, and I'm like, that show meant so much to so many people, let alone Batwoman for what it meant for people of color. So, yeah. Now moving into our new movies, we are talking releases across this week and last. We got three titles to bring to you today. We are doing dual reviews for Fantastic Beasts: The Secrets of Dumbledore. That is the uh, latest David Yates installment for the Harry Potter franchise. And then we have The Bad Guys, directed by Pierre Perifel. Uh, that will be a solo review from myself. And then Brandon and I will be talking Robert Eggers' The Northman, which I cannot wait to get into. Now that I finished this logger, Brandon, I might need another, but <laughs> we'll start talking Fantastic Beasts. So Fantastic Beasts, Secrets of Dumbledore. Let's get into it. Okay. This is the third, potentially of five installments of the Fantastic Beasts series. Box office wise, we'll see. Critical wise, we'll see. We'll get into it. Uh, but yes, if you have been a fan of the Harry Potter Wizarding World, this is the newest installment of that. It's been out now for a couple of weeks. Directed once again by David Yates, who did the last two films as well as the last four Harry Potter films. He's basically been the only Harry Potter director since, I believe, 2010, I want to say. I'll double check that in a moment. 
Needless to say, we pick up 10 years after the events of the Crimes of Grindelwald, the last movie. We once again pick up with Newt Scamander, played by Eddie Redmayne. He is once again working as a magic zoologist. He's evading burglars and a, a wizarding world that is becoming way too harsh for his own good. Sounds familiar. We'll get into it. He's once again contacted by Albus Dumbledore, once again played by Jude Law from the last movie, who basically comes to him and says, hey, remember the last movie? And he's like, no. Well, let me tell you again. Uh, there's this blood pact between me and Grindelwald, who in this movie is now played by Mads Mikkelsen. We had uh, performances from Colin Farrell and Johnny Depp in the past few movies. Now Mads Mikkelsen is in the role. Uh, so yeah, me and Grindelwald, uh, we have a thing. We can't fight each other, but we're, we can still have this weird like kind of chess battle to get in the way. And he's like, that sounds weird. And he's like, I thought so. So I brought friends. And who's the friends he brings? Well, he brings uh, Lally Hicks, played by Jessica Williams, who had a cameo in the last movie. Now she's a full-blown role in this. You have uh, Yusuf Kama, played by uh, William Nadalin, who was in the last movie, and I just forgot about him. He was uh, Lita's distant ancestor, kind of related to Beltrix and Strange. The whole Strange family is weird, but he's in there too. He's kind of like the stoic badass of the group. Uh, you also have Calvin Turner in there as Theseus, uh, Newt's war hero brother-in-law, who thinks he's kind of a bit of a goofball, but loves him anyway. And most importantly, Jacob Kowalski. Uh, Dan Fogler is once again back as Jacob. He remembers everything of Blasphemy movies, and he's got a wand now, courtesy of Dumbledore, so he can actually fight in the battles. Uh, at the same time, we also have Queenie returning, played by Alison Sudol. She's now full-blown on Grindelwald's side. She believes in basically wizard nationalism, that kind of thing. Uh, but she's also conflicted with the relationship with Jacob. That gets her whole thing. And last but not least, we have Credence, played, of course, by Ezra Miller, who is now going by their uh, official birth, na birth name, or so should speak, Aurelius Dumbledore. Yes, that's right. If you didn't watch the last movie, Credence is related to Dumbledore. That's the whole thing. And it's basically this giant chess match between Albus and Grindelwald and the fate of the Wizarding World. There's an election coming up. It's a whole thing. No, before I explain even more plot of this movie, and I do like this movie, spoiler, but there is a lot of plot to this movie. What did you think? <laughs> so, Brandon, um, let's talk about Fantastic Beasts and the Secrets of Dumbledore. Um, I will say that... I love it. I will say that this is a movie that is outright about gay exes. You know, this is about um, that song that goes, All my exes live at Hogwarts because Grindelwald and Dumbledore do have a foundational relationship that we explore, like in the very first scene about how they both chose love over, you know, feuding with each other to achieve their lifelong, you know, aspirations when it came to the wizarding world um, and they have dueling perspectives as they grow up, you know, as drama ensues. And so we just know that they are former lovers who cannot battle each other, um, which seemingly takes like the, f at least for me at, at the start of this movie, it takes the focus of what this fantastic beast movie is. And then we have a very, a very nice sequence of Newt uh, delivering the child of this new fantastic beast, this new, uh, as he is a zoologist for the wizarding world, this, creature is um named i think it's a chillin and a chillin is a legendary creature in the fantastic beast universe that um it can see into the souls of someone through their eyes and so uh, it has some like lore behind it in the fantastic beast world where this creature is um at one point it was used to elect the next leader of their community. And so I think that that is why um, there is such importance placed upon this creature. I probably um, should have mentioned that the children plays an important role in the election. There was just a lot of... <laughs> no, understandably so, because, yeah, when I watched this movie, I thought, holy crap, is there a lot of 
moving parts. Okay. This movie is called the secrets of Dumbledore. And up until we got to like the third act, I think I kept acting, asking myself, like, why is this movie called the secrets of Dumbledore? Like some standouts for me are we have Newt Scamander returning as a sweetheart to follow. You know, he has so much care and affection towards, um, these these creatures that he carries around in his briefcase and it's always a priority that he places on others needs over his own that i think make you root for him even more as he gets sidelined over these other big personalities and um that being said like across the second film we saw less and less of his counterpart like his romantic kind of counterpart tina and even in this film i was surprised that tina was uh, primarily absent from the from the story um, that was very interesting I wanted to see more beasts like I wanted to see more of the creatures that this series is really founded upon and I think that in exploring the chillin and any of the creatures um, in between because there are more than just a handful of them I was actually impressed with what they did with the creatures in this film as I was reading criticisms before which were like if you have a title like that you can't have the focus not be on them and their relationship to these creatures. So, um, Brandon, how did you feel about the focus on Newt in this movie, um, as opposed to like bringing in other huge franchise names, which are Dumbledore? It is only barely so. And let me, let me refresh this. I like this movie quite a bit, actually. I don't think it's as good as the first Fantastic Beasts, because I genuinely think is a very good movie, but I like it a lot more than the second one. And I think it's because it doubles down on the things I think Secrets of Grindelwald took away, which was that wondrous sense of like Newt as this weird, awkward cinnamon roll of a character who you just kind of either are into following him or you're not. And for me, I was totally into it. And just the weird world of the, the weird wizarding world and what it has to offer. And this movie has more of that tied into a Mission Impossible framework that is weird to follow, but I thought it was kind of rewarding. That being said, yeah, it's barely focused on Newt in that the title is around Dumbledore, the main conflict is around Dumbledore. You can only barely make the argument that it's a co-lead between Dumbledore and Newt, although I think they do enough in making Newt a key part of the group. Like, he's not just an element of Dumbledore's army, which is what it actually is. Like, it's not just that Newt actually has agency here, and I was impressed they were able to keep that balance for as long as they did. Information we received at the end of the second film was Credence is actually a Dumbledore. And so uh, we have this standout sequence at the very end where Credence, or sorry, where the new Dumbledore like explodes a mountain that is right outside. Oh, I can't even remember the place where they're staying. But that being said, I was expecting that power to be brought from this new Dumbledore character who now can... uh appear like can now be uh sorry what's the word like followed i guess by a phoenix and so there was all these little elements that i was waiting to see click together with this new revelation but unfortunately i felt like it kind of fell short on the dumbledore aspect uh and i'm talking about the name i'm not talking about uh albus dumbledore's character here so a dumbledore dynasty so to speak Exactly. Like the Dumbledores in Harry Potter have now become the Skywalkers of Star Wars. Am I right? Um, you're you're so, not wrong. <laughs> so I'll tell you right now, if you're approaching this movie and you're not following the Fantastic Beasts uh, franchise that closely, I like that you compared it to Mission Impossible because that's that's exactly what it feels like is totally. Dumbledore... Dumbledore assembles his army and says, not every one of you can know the whole plan. So each of you will know pieces of it. And then we get to follow each of those pieces. Now, someone who brings, uh, who I think brings some refreshing material to the group is um, Jessica Williams in her portrayal as Eulalie Lally Hicks. So she is a, a correspondent of Newt's from the American 
wizarding community. And it was so lovely to see them both interact for the first time because Newt looks at her with the type of awkwardness of like, hey, we've just been pen pals before and we respect each other greatly. But she is a charms master. And that is really exemplified through scenes of, you know, an assassination attempt or this book that explodes its pages out and is able to transport them and act as a port key. Like those were instances where I was so tuned in because you learn what a port key is when you watch like Goblet of Fire and to see it like mentioned and come back in a movie, you know, several numbers later, it was so exciting. And so I I found myself really uh, enjoying whenever uh, Hicks was on screen or Lally. Um, Jessica Williams, I'll go even a step further, steals the show. Like every second she's on screen, even if it's a pivotal like battle sequence, even like the tail end third act, in the few moments she has, she steals the seat. She knows exactly what she is asked to do. She knows exactly the level of charm she's asked to deliver it. And I don't even know her that well of an actress, but like she kills this really. I would have gave anything to see a gay Harry Potter storyline back when I was growing up. And it was just mattered for me to hear the lines in the script regarding Dumbledore's and Grindelwald's past romantic relationship where with the original Harry Potter movies, all we got was like a mention from JK Rowling mentioning like, Hey, by the way, like, Oh yeah. Dumbledore was gay. Like that whole, that whole time he was gay. And I was like, okay, cool. Well, it it was nice at least to hear the words spoken. And we learned from headlines that those lines were dropped from China's wide release. Like they couldn't say that Grindelwald and Dumbledore chose to not battle each other out of love. They couldn't say certain lines like that. And so I think that's why it's worth mentioning is because America could keep it. And at least we could experience this story like as it was, um, <laughs> as it was written. And that's kind of another point of mine is JK Rowling penned the script for Fantastic Beasts one and two here. She got help. And I was like, thank you because dependent on this film's success is the future of Fantastic Beasts. When if you walk into this film and go, yeah. Trilogy, again, the conversation of a trilogy. I'm going to get the wrap-up of, of Newt's storyline. No, you are not. There is a Fantastic Beast plan to have four and five. This is a five-picture saga, and we have to see how well this film does in the box office and sales to see if we're even going to get a four and five because they are waiting on that. We've already ran way too long with this, but I have two points to make. One, I really like the Grindelwald-Albus relationship. I like the way it's developed. I like... First of all, we haven't even mentioned Mads Mikkelsen. He's great in this as a creepy bad guy, but I think he's even better in the idea of someone who Albus has harmed. And we get to see that idea of the really tactile relationship between the two of them and how Albus is not a perfect person. We knew that from the latter couple of Harry Potter films, but it's more established here and just like, no, like you hurt me. And like, you didn't send me down this path, but like you didn't push me away from it either. And like, I like that complexity between the two, that restaurant scene in the beginning, which is I think gorgeous. Like I really like the tension and the ideas that are brought up in that. They're not all explored later on, but they're there. And I like that it's there. The other thing, oh, sorry, go ahead. For one, Mads Mikkelsen is picking up a role that he has been absent from for the past two films. We've only seen Depp's portrayal as Grindelwald because with Colin Farrell portraying Grindelwald, he was Grindelwald acting as like head of, you know, another wizarding faction. And so to me, that wasn't Grindelwald's character until he trans, until he transformed into the character Depp portrayed. We haven't even gotten to one of my points, which is like the jailbreak scene, but I don't want to dive into there um, yeah, without yeah. asking. Well, no, you know what? That's important. So like, let's talk about the creatures real quick. Theseus at one point is taken um, into custody by like German wizarding forces and Newt has to figure out how to get him back. So the plan to get him back is he has to approach this like underground 
prison and he has to give up his wand. He has to give up his friendly little, I forget his name, but the little green guy pick. He just has his himself and his own vices to go and uh, search for his brother in his prison with a lantern. We hear these like little cockroach ticks of something following him. And we just think to ourselves, what in the world could that be? Fantastic beast. What kind of fantastic (laughs) beast is around me? And so we forget that Newt Scamander, he is a badass in the zoologist world. This felt like that that sequence of characters in King Kong when they're stuck in a cavern and these monstrous bugs come out. And that's what I felt. Uh, it's a great sequence. And like you said, I like when the, I like when these films establish Newt as like, yeah, he's weird. He's awkward. People don't really like him, but when he needs to be there in a fight, he's absolutely there. I love what they do in that first element where spoiler, the first couple minutes are a fight between him and Credence. And I love that dichotomy that you immediately see of like, no, he cares more about the chillin than his own safety. The other point that I really wanted to get to, just that I dropped earlier, uh, you mentioned the idea of this is a trilogy. I will not spoil it, but I really love this ending, uh, particularly just as someone who has appreciated, maybe not loved, but appreciated what the Fantastic Beast films have been. If you have been at all invested in these characters, if this was the last Fantastic Beast movie, I think it is a great ending because it ties up all of their arcs and it establishes Dumbledore as like, maybe he could be the character going forward, maybe he doesn't. But like this story as is and these threads have been wrapped. And I was really impressed to be like, no, like they clearly want more, but they had the balls to be like, we're going to end this. And that's not a move that I see a lot of blockbusters making nowadays. And it's been the type of plot where Newt finds himself involved, not because he's like a la Harry Potter, the chosen one, Like he's willing to uh, attack the challenge. And uh, it it just makes me think about your point right now about him wrapping up. And he, I mean, uh, I'm talking about spoilers right now, but I don't want to. Point being, if Dumbledore became the primary focus moving forward, I think that these films could be a successful wrap up to this whole Grindelwald Dumbledore storyline. But Newt does have a nice, you know, a nice wrap up to what we needed to see him as. And that was like this leader in the whole magical creature community. I think that, I think that you said it well, Brandon, I will say out of 10, I'm out of y'all know me. So I'm going to say out of five, honestly, a three out of 10 or three out of five for me. So that makes it a six out of 10, um, kind of leaning towards the less side though. Like it was very close to being a five and a half for me because of the convoluted storyline that kind of involved Newt, but not just because he was a zoologist and what we've known, but because he was there and accessible to Dumbledore, which I found to be um, a little unfortunate for the character. But that being said, it had some pretty great sequences that involved Newt and his primary um, ability to communicate and to be empathetic to these creatures and to really understand them. And that's what I value. Um, in addition to providing excellent supporting characters in Lally, who we've discussed already, and Queenie makes a return, like you're going to see familiar faces. Um, but I think Fantastic Beasts remains the kind of uh, roller coaster ride of, of structure. But um, I did find myself enjoying The Secrets of Dumbledore. So six out of 10 for me. Again, as I mentioned, it's basically the Wizarding World beats Mission Impossible. It gets convoluted. It has way too much plot. It has too many things going on that aren't explained enough. But I think if you're willing to invest in it and especially just focus on that core relationship between Dumbledore and Grindelwald, it's really satisfying. Newt and his friends get a really good satisfying ending to it. The action sequences, I think, are very well done and really entertaining and utilize the Wizarding World in ways that we haven't seen. Again, it is not perfect by any means. And if you have been turned off at all, I cannot convince you to go see this. There's just too much mess of it going forward. That being said, it's still a solid 7 out of 10 for me. I had a really fun time with it. 
And with that being said, we're going to move on to our next major release for the week, The Bad Guys, which I didn't get to see because I was stuck at home with COVID. But Noah did. And in a twist, he's going to be our animation nerd for today. Noah, tell the people about The Bad Guys. What a weird twist. Uh, horror corresponding turns into Anna animated. Welcome to the fun side. Hey, you know what? I'll chill out here for a minute since I need to, right? So let's talk about The Bad Guys. This is directed, of course, by Pierre Parafel, and uh, some of his directing credits include uh, several shorts. I'll mention a couple titles, Le Building or Bilby, if you're familiar. But he actually has plenty of animation department credits on IMDb, including, uh, you know, he has credits across all of the Kung Fu Panda titles, uh, leading animator on the movie Rise of the Guardians, uh, and additional credits over Monsters vs. Aliens, Shrek Forever After, so <laughs> riding into the, the bad guys, who let the dogs out? We are in a universe that includes woof, woof. Uh, we are in a universe that includes both human and non-human characters in animals. So uh, the primary cast is of the bad guys. So we have uh, the wolf portrayed, uh, or I'm sorry, the wolf played by Sam Rockwell. We have snake portrayed by Mark Marone. We have tarantula, Aquafina. There is shark played by Craig Robinson. We have piranha played by Anthony Ramos. And then uh, the like the goodie of the of it all is Richard Ayoade, who plays Professor Marmalade. If any of you have tuned into the animated series Apple and Onion, yes, he is the voice of Onion, and he is precious to listen to. And then we have Zazie Beats, who plays Diane Foxington, a new uh, governor of this city that they are in, um, who has a neat relationship with uh, the wolf character. And then Alex Borstein. Uh, lends her voice as well as the chief of police. And I've recognized her voice before because I'm a big Family Guy fan, at least growing up I was. Um, but let's talk about the bad guys. So the film pits these bad guys, a group of high-profile burglars and thieves to be subjected to treatment by the hands of Professor Marmalade, that is uh, a guinea pig, to turn the bad guys good. This results in some changes for the crew. It causes this very specific rupture between the crew's leading pair. You know, the leading bromancing duo is the wolf and the snake and so it causes a nice rupture because the wolf actually wants to be good like you have these instances where the wolf recognizes how good it feels to help others and not to uh, always be that con man or always trying to stab somebody in the back so to see him recognize that and try and almost fool his crew to being good was the initial story point of this film the movie's rated PG. It's about an hour and 40 minutes, and I saw it with my seven-year-old little brother, so I think it's completely enjoyable across audiences. Uh, if he wasn't laughing, I definitely was. This animation actually does have some 3D uh, theatrical releases across uh, the nation, so I hope that you're able to check it out. And it was reminiscent, at least for me, in... Um, it feels like the Spider-Verse animation where you're not having just the uh, 2D art style, but you're having things actually feel like they blend into their surroundings. We have depth of field where if characters are up close and personal, we can see that. And if characters in the background, they're of course going to be blurred out. And I found that I really appreciated that animation style. Uh, when it comes to the group of ragtag characters, I will say that the film's called the bad guys. And I did not think to myself to look at the characters and go, Hey, why are they called that? Some people have like phobias of these animals. I will say for myself, if there was an alligator on this cast, I would be joined in with them. But thankfully, I am. There's no alligator attached, and 
Oh my gosh, does that make no me alligators on the podcast? Good to know. <laughs> no alligators, please. Um, <laughs> but that being said, uh, they are being trained to be good by Professor Marmalade, who is a guinea pig. Um, he is recognized because he, uh, there's this crater that is formed in the earth after this comet falls down and he uh, takes part of the crater for himself and it ends up looking like this giant heart. And so he spreads the message of love and peace. And I hope that doesn't turn on its head and he ends up being bad. Wink, wink. Uh, <laughs> but you'll see, I think the, the comparison between these uh, traditionally bad care, these bad animals and then asking them to be trained good by this guinea pig character uh, was fun to watch. It, it's a cute film. I found myself watching it and kind of like you watch it with hard eyes because every little instant it's being focused on from a frame of you can choose to be good. If you, if you have these bad reputations, you can always choose to be good. Uh, one scene in particular is the wolf rescuing a adorable cat out of a tree as part of a test. And then it explodes over social media. Yes. All these animals use social media. And then to see the wolf, relationship develop with Zazie Beeps, who is Diane Foxington, uh, you will learn that her character has more to offer than just uh, the governor of their city. Um, you receive these characters in one light and the film asks you to see them in another. And all the while you're getting fun sequences that, that remind you of like Ocean's Eleven with all of their heisting that they do, uh, which is always hysterically gone wrong. And then um, also... Diane, Diane Foxington's development as, you know, governor by day, but, you know, something else by night, tease, tease, tease. Uh, I think you'll really appreciate that. And all the while we have a chief of police, chief of police who is, uh, hysterical, who is <laughs> like goofy beyond compare, uh, played by Alex Forstein. And I found that I really appreciated that. Um, major themes from this movie, I think are just, um, for one, it's loyalty and friendship. You know, when we look at the bad guys, we get a sense of found family from all of these characters who were rejected by their own communities and found comfort in themselves. So I found that that really translated across the screen. I wish I could say more, but like I said, I think what you take on the surface is what you get. And if you looked at it deeper, you would just find more elements of how important those friendships are and, um, you know, remaining true to yourself. And if something feels good, um, then, I mean, it doesn't hurt to do good. So uh, for my rating on this film, I would say enjoying it with my little bro kind of bumps it up half a point for me. So uh, this is an eight and a half and very quickly a top in my animation for the year. I do hope we get to see more animation this year. But um, if this is some of the original work coming out, then I have no problem considering it a great, uh, considering it's outside the realm of the MCUs and all these other big budget Pixar animations that we get every year. So the bad guys is going to be a standout, at least for now, until we see more. Uh, so bad guys is playing in theaters. It's making money right now. It's apparently really good. I need to see it. Check it all out if you haven't. Uh, we're going to move on to our last major movie for today. Noah, have you refilled your lager? Hitherto, uh, mentioning the Northman on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> I well, said you, grab well, it. you've spoiled it. That was going to be the tease, but okay. Uh, dude, I didn't mean to spoil it. I just meant to say that I'm drinking a seltzer now because I ran out of lager. <laughs> Like a true Viking, uh, as is this movie, The Northman. We've been dying to talk about it. I barely got to see it before I got stuck at home, but it is directed by Robert Eggers, who, if you are familiar with his work, he did The Vich. Yes, that's how it's pronounced. He also did The Lighthouse, uh, Willem Dafoe, and Ani Taylor-Joy are back from those movies, as is Alexander Skarsgård as Amleth, Prince Amleth, I should say, 
He is the son of Ethan Hawke's character, the chieftain of this medieval Viking village. Uh, most of the people really respect him, except for his nefarious brother, uh, played by uh, Clay's Bang, who you've probably seen in a bunch of other things. I just don't have his filmography in front of me. Anyways, needless to say, this is not a spoiler. It's in the trailer. Uh, Clay's Bang kills Ethan Hawke. Uh, the young Amleth runs away, uh, pledging to avenge his father, save his mother, played by Nicole Kidman, and kill uh, Fjolder, who is Clay's Bang's character. Years later, we cut to Amleth, now played by Alexander Skarsgård, and ripped beyond belief, I must say. Leading a band of mercenaries, he hears about his uncle, who has now fallen on hard times. He brands himself as a slave to try and get in with him, and then he meets Ani Taylor-Joy's character, who is a supposed witch is this connected to the witch we don't know uh but she has like weird supernatural abilities as well and the two of them team up to basically haunt and torment his uncle the movie gets dark and weird and frankly epic as hell from there noah over to you i'm taking you have more experience with edgar's films than i do because i was too scared to see the witch what did you have going into this and does the northman live up to the hype that we put it on our most anticipated lists Okay, Brandon. So familiar titles from uh, Robert Eggers. And of course, this is a director who takes on writing and directing credits across his titles of The Vitch, The Lighthouse, starring Robert Pattinson, Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe returns for The Northman. So does Anya Taylor-Joy from The Vitch. And I was really happy to see his work with these actors like continue because his very first major picture was the vich at least that's what IMDb tells us. And I just think to myself, this is a director who is so far like early, very early in his career and is impressing masses of people because the Northmen, yeah, it was this huge, uh, Viking picture that we were all riding hard for because it's, it featured Alexander Skarsgård. Like the cast itself blew us out the park, um, <laughs> with inclusions of Bjork, with inclusions of, like you say, Clyde's or Clay's, sorry. And then Ethan Hawke, Nicole Kidman. This was the film I think to look out for because of the scale it proposed in its early trailers. Like, and you can feel that kind of hardcore Viking nature in the trailer. Um, now did that translate across to the feature itself holy hell is this an epic like he ventured into that horror space with the vich and even in the northman with some of the perspectives you can apply to uh what really went down because i feel like that's more ambiguous of his titles but in the northman we really just have a familiar tale if you've seen it already i will say this is a tale that feels familiar by the time you walk out because it's reminiscent of the lion king or maybe you heard of Hamlet, because of the film's historical context, the Northman is based on the story of Amleth. Unsurprisingly, it's the same name as our main character, which coincidentally is the basis of Shakespeare's Hamlet. So I will say that I did freak out when I looked at Brandon on our Zoom call and I was like, oh my gosh, Brandon, if you move the H from the end of Amleth and you put it in front, it spells Hamlet. It- <laughs> and, I, and I freaked out when I came back from the theater and saw that and I was like, God, that makes too much sense. Did you think this was the story that was teased and shown to you, like, in the trailer? Looking back, yeah. Even looking into it, there's a lot of similarities there. Honestly, Brandon, I think that I got the movie that I was not shown in the trailers because where I got, like, a gritty, like, bloodthirsty story of this man, Amleth, who played by Skarsgård, was going to avenge his father and rescue his mother from his uncle. Instead, I got 
Skarsgård across two hours playing this Viking character who has to really disguise his nature so that he can be sold as a slave to his uncle's family. And then working as a slave, he befriends Olga. She's very connected to her faith in a different way that is very connected to nature. And so I feel like she really grounds his character in the present with, with those elements. Um, and we instead get Skarsgård as he, uh, does his work as he slowly connects with the members of the family that will elevate his position as a slave to eventually like ordering other slaves around. And eventually he's involved in like a game from different slaves from different families. Like this was very much a story that focused on a Viking as he does the initial raid. And then he lives a life of slave enslavement until he can enact his revenge. And I will say that I was not expecting that at all. Um, am I happy that it, it followed through the way it did? Honestly, yeah. I think that this movie incorporates supernatural elements from the Viking world that I really appreciated. Like we have glimpses of a Valkyrie. We have um, the, <laughs> we have like prophesized messages delivered from a witch type character to Amleth guiding him toward a sword that will be the chosen weapon for him to take revenge on his uncle. And I found myself appreciating those elements a hell of a lot more than the overarching story itself. You know, when it comes to Eggers, I think that he chose this point in history so that he could showcase his attention to detail and his ability to translate like source material and historical background to a film and have it feel like it all fits in the same world. And I will say, I found myself appreciating that a whole lot more than um, the story itself and the presentation. Well, I can't comment on Eggers as a director because again, I was too much of a scaredy cat to see the Vich. And then I missed out on the lighthouse, even though it's apparently not a horror movie, although it looked like it. If you want to talk about marketing Eggers movies, that was the whole thing for me. Uh, that being said, I love this movie. This movie's dope. Future me, edit this out. This movie's awesome. There is an aesthetic to this movie that is precisely up my alley. There's a level of authenticity and grit to this movie that I greatly admire. And I know you mentioned the idea of like, it wasn't the movie you were marketed. I think it's very much that and more. Like it is a Viking tale. It is very much, you know, brutal fights in, you know, gory mud and things like that. There's that great opening scene with Skarsgård and his band of misfits, you know, going to raid that town. And that's cool. But like, then it becomes something more. It becomes akin to almost like a classic movie, almost like I found like echoes of Rashomon and like Great Escape and, you know, like Tarantino movies. Like there's something classic about how this movie is structured in the idea of someone who is claiming what they're not meant to be unraveling the layers of that and unraveling the enemy the layers of their enemies as well that i kept finding like wait this was in this movie this is fascinating i think on top of your point there is this continuation of eggers presenting characters that at least in the vich there's a surface level to characters that sometimes carries out from beginning to end and then there's other times where there are still there are still things to be learned about our characters. I think that Willem Dafoe's, I don't remember his character from, or character name from The Lighthouse, but I felt like he was somebody who was very, um, like on either side of the fence, like you never really understood his intentions. And I think that that was uh, effective for making an eerie, like, uh, 
uncertain story about what would result in our in our protagonist in that film. And here in The Northman, I think he does the same thing where he puts Skarsgård slash Amleth in this position where he has these immediate perceptions of who his enemies are and who his allies will be when he achieves his goal by the end of his adult life. And then when he's there, all of those perspectives, all of those motivations kind of get shifted. And as an audience, it's hard to watch because you want, you want to feel vindicated with your protagonist, but I'll be honest, there's just the situation is not as it seems for Amleth when he arrives. And if you're familiar with the Hamlet story, you probably have a notion as to what I'm getting at. But it's not until you experience it that you you get to really feel how how Eggers lets that unravel of, uh, you know, in a, in a way. And and Skarsgård is able to delve into both of them. He's able to delve into the pure drive and motivation of Amleth as a character, but also the cracks in there. And I was surprised that because I know Skarsgård, obviously, from, like, Melancholy and Pretty Little Lies and, like, stuff like that. But, like, this is where I've been able to see him really tackle nuance as an actor in a movie that, like you said, I don't think I was expecting that. And to see those layers on display as much as Eggers allows them to be is really investing to me as an audience member. Alexander Skarsgård, if he... If his IMDb picture, which is him attending the Oscars with no pants on, is any indication as to the the hunk and hulk of the man, whoo, was I sweating watching this movie. But to be honest, I was upset when he cut his long Viking hair after like the first 10 minutes. But even though I, I, I'll move on from my Skarsgård comment to my drooling Skarsgård comment. Um, Nicole Kidman, we've seen Skarsgård and Kidman share the screen before um, on the smaller scale, you know, in Big Little Lies, they were partners. And so now that he's pursuing her as his mother, I thought this was kind of like, ooh, like just being somebody who's familiar with their roles. I was like, this is interesting. But it's honestly, weird. I mean, I was going to say, works. honestly, I didn't, yeah, I didn't feel like it caused any kind of rift in my experience. Like I was watching it and I was completely on board. There were several times that Kidman's uh, accent kind of dropped. And I was like, Ugh. but other than that, I thought that um, I liked the shifts in her character. And I liked how every time they were on screen together, it felt like a really intense moment. So however, the film built up to those moments, uh, you know, much credit to his, to Eggers' writing. Um, and even more so when I talk about attention to detail and historical background, like, there are situations that you find these families and their slaves in, like, like I said before, like they play a, a game, like a sport with each other where it's the most brutal version of lacrosse. Exactly. And you don't expect that going into it, but after you see it and you look back, you kind of reflect and go, this dude, like he, he takes a history lesson and he throws it on screen for you and lets you experience every notion of it without excluding supernatural elements. Because one of the sequences that made me kind of like, oh my gosh, like this is amazing, um, was when uh, Amleth is prophesized to retrieve this sword in order to slay his uncle. And when he res- when he grabs this sword off of a dead man's body, he comes to life and he has to duel out this man in order to retrieve the sword, only to realize that after the fact, it's not what he imagined at all. But even then, I was, I was really on board for that. Like something about the supernatural elements of this film work so well. Even even as they happen at night, even as they happen kind of separate to real life, the realism of this film, they still fit so well together. Brandon, would you agree? How did you feel the supernatural elements fit into this film? Really cool. 
because and I hate to be like that drooling guy or just like, yeah, this is awesome. But like, I think it's really cool because there's often times where you can't tell what's real and what's not. Like that whole fighting scene with the sword, there's a moment where towards the end of the fight, you're not quite sure if like, well, did he beat him or didn't he? And there's moments like that with like Anya Taylor-Joy's witch powers or like the idea of curses or, you know, Willem Dafoe's character when he comes back into play. I won't say how, but like when he comes back into play, like the whole movie Eggers is playing with your ideas of what's real and what's not. And again, framing it in a character who firmly believes in what is real and what is not. So it makes the entire viewpoint of it all more fascinating. It's all just a visually gorgeous movie. And again, to that point of like magical realism, you're increasingly wondering what you should believe in and buy into as much as Amler is. Let's hop over to ratings. What do you what do you rate the Northman and Robert Eggers' third major, you know, uh widespread release? The Northman is freaking awesome. Uh you should all see it. It's really great. I will simply say it's over two hours long and it feels it. Like there's at least six separated sections in the movie. We failed to mention that. Like it's based out like everything everywhere at once where it's based in chunks. So that might that kind of pacing might affect it as much. It is an epic and it knows it and it wants you to know it. And that might drive people away. There's also, again, some things like the script. Like, I won't mention where Ani Taylor-Joy's character winds up, but I had an issue where, like, she is left in a certain place and then we just kind of don't follow her anymore, which I didn't really care for. That being said, the rest of this movie is awesome. Skarsgård, again, Ani Taylor-Joy, Nicole Kidman in a really weird twist. Again, she gets, like, one scene of Skarsgård. It's great. The aesthetics of it all is, is awesome. And Eggers is a director who knows how to use the pacing and the world building and the pure grit of it all to his advantage to explore some really great ideas about motivation and drive and belief in a world that is constantly evolving and you can't go along with it, which is, I think, Amlet's core tenet as a character, and just makes for a really interesting story that if you are willing to go along with, you know, the brutal Viking aesthetic of it all, I think is really worth it. So a 9 out of 10 for me, I freaking love this. Great, great uh, rating, Brandon. Excellent. Uh, I will say that following Skarsgård into this new leading epic, as Brandon says, entirely metal, entirely like visceral in its experience, and it, it grips you and it does not let go for that two-hour runtime. Um, I think that the cast supports my rating here, and I think that the pure grit of it all, we didn't even talk about this um, entire pillaging sequence where the Vikings like annihilate a small village uh, where Olga, Anya Taylor-Joy's character, becomes um, uh, sold as a slave from. Uh, that in itself was just remarkable on a production standpoint that I, I, I find myself just remembering that and so many other scenes from this film that I that were completely new to me and that were completely um, inventive and I think uh, yes it tells a story about the Vikings and to your point Brandon about Joy's character Olga it leaves her in a weird place where you're kind of like yeah that's (laughs) that's the the toxic like perspective of like you know the man's got to be the man and if I give my life and leave my family to fend for themselves I'm winning and I will be awarded in the afterlife that's wrong but But again without but again without spoiling it that ties into Amla's journey and you're so involved by that point where you're like well I guess sure yeah you said it yourself um for me this film is a solid seven and a half out of ten I think that if you write into this just expecting historical appreciation from Eggers you will walk away uh knowing that he he did the job well and it's 
very well worth a rewatch. Um, if I find time this week to make it to theaters, I think between the three titles we covered today, uh, bad guys, you know, I'll see you again with some, with some of my younger friends, uh, sorry, younger, some of my younger siblings. Um, but the Northman, I think is the major title this week that I would love to go and rewatch. And of course the Northman is playing exclusively in theaters right now. You can go check it out. Let's move on to our final topic of discussion for today. We have one thing of TV to talk about today, and that is a whole bunch of Moon Knight stuff. We talked about the first two episodes uh, last episode. Now we're going to be talking about episodes three, four, and five. Those episodes are called, and I had the title in front of me, The Friendly Type, The Tomb, and Asylum. Uh, We're going to talk about the finale, of course, next episode. But for right now, let's hop into what is essentially the meat of the series. Noah, over to you. Let's hop into a general discussions, three, four, and five. What do you think? I think we should limit our conversation to probably episodes three and four, and then we can talk about five separately. Would you agree? I really want to talk about five, but okay, sure. I think we could talk five, but just after our discussion of three and four. Well, that's fine. If we go episode by episode, that's fine. Right? So um, episodes of three and four are meant to fit Mark and the Moon Knight into this uh <laughs> this a situation that involves Harrow trying to unleash a, um, a a separate Egyptian god that the current, I don't want to call it a pantheon. Can you call it a pantheon? Yeah, it's a pantheon of gods. Yeah, the current pantheon of god pantheon of gods do not see anything wrong with. So that was a trial of sorts with Oscar Isaac completely flexing his acting chops, acting as one character being possessed by an Egyptian God and speaking through him. Um, I have some thoughts, but whatever those thoughts were, they got trashed and thrown in the garbage because episode five was immediately like a reversal on whatever I thought the series was trying to accomplish. Brandon, what did you think about episodes three and four? Again, going back to my point about episode one and two from our last show, I think they could have been just one tight episode and they were really trying to expand the idea of Mark and Steven's journey beyond what those episodes needed to. This one, on the other hand, I think does it better. I think it reestablishes Steven in the context of the show because before it was just like, oh, Steven's getting dragged along by Mark and, you know, Mark's going to be the superhero and yay. And this one's like, nope, Steven's kind of a genius and like we kind of need him for this, which I really respected. Uh, side note. Doctor Strange is probably having an aneurysm because of what Khonshu did, uh, the whole star moving thing. And I saw a bunch of people talking on Twitter, just like, is that going to be reference to multiverse? It's not. Um, but no, that being said, I like the idea of Stephen and Mark in this episode reestablishing their dynamic with themselves, but also bringing in Layla, who is great. Um, May Callumway, I believe is her name. Uh, she's fantastic. Uh, she has such a great kind of charisma to her, and you are immediately drawn into her likability, but also this kind of backstory that we get in episode four and we'll talk about but like there's a great relationship between her and oscar isaac uh we should also be we should also be remiss to mention uh anton's actor uh gaspar deliel who passed away shortly after this so rest in peace uh he's quite good in this i wish we had gotten more of him in this series because i think anton as a character provides a link to egypt that layla tries and that we get later down the line but i think in this episode we needed something a bit more concrete and it's there the fight sequence is awesome and i love the moon cape so much uh, that being said, it's fine. It It's paced well enough. Uh, the ending is great with, you know, taking away Khonshu. What does that mean for our characters? But again, it's a fine story for what it is. As Mark and Steven both have different interpretations of themselves, in the Moon Knight suit, that carries. Like, as we see Steven take on the suit, it's a completely, like, 
dapper like tuxedo type suit and his weapons are even altered but then when we see mark take on the suit it's that traditional you know cape and uh you know the moon uh the moon weapons that he pulls from his chest like if you've seen it you know what i'm talking about and when those two conflict in the middle of a action sequence I'm in my seat laughing because they're so funny. And Oscar Isaac is amazing at portraying those both as separate characters. Isaac's portrayal in this, and we'll talk about it in the other two episodes, but I think he only, as the episodes get on, nails the dichotomy between Stephen and Mark so well. And again, their strengths, he's allowed to be that. And I like how Mohammed Diem and you know Jeremy Slater and this whole team increasingly are dividing the line between what makes Stephen and Mark Stephen and Mark. We'll get into that third avatar later, but that's a whole other thing. Um, but like the whole idea of it being what it is, I think it's allowed to be more complicated than the first two episodes make it out to be, which I was really excited to see. Wait, Brandon, you said it. You said it, the third avatar. Yeah. So is there somebody else who took them who took them over in Egypt? Because th- that hasn't been mentioned, that hasn't been covered. Maybe not in Egypt, but definitely in episode four, uh, four or five. It's the one of the psychiatric ward things, but there's definitely something there, and I know it's there. Because it's when they're on the rooftop fighting, and they and Mark gets taken out. But when yep. it comes to, it's not Steven that took over. It was someone else, right? It was someone else. Oh, yes. my gosh. I'm freaking out. That sounds so cool. Okay. Let's talk about episode at the, it's really not even episode five. It's the end of episode four into five. So Brandon, can you sum up what really happens on the end of episode four? Uh, Mark and Steven die and they go to what appears to be a psychiatric ward and then hippo, or should I say uh Tawert, who is another Egyptian God who we were introduced to, who is great. And we'll get more into it with episode five, but yeah, episode four is I think it was the first episode where I felt like, okay, tell me where the show is going. Because it basically turns into Indiana Jones with Layla and Steven. And I love how giddy they get in the temple. But there's this sort of twinkle that comes up before their eyes that you don't see in the rest of the show. And I'm like, yes, give me more. This is fun. It's so funny to explore romantic relationships between one, Mark Spector, who is already like, I think they're engaged. Like, I think they're fiancés, um, him and Layla. And then Steven, who is, when he interacts with Layla, he's very shy and very kind of timid because this is a woman who he's just met, but slowly romantic feelings arise. And to Layla, she is understanding this as like, I think she's still grappling with the fact that Mark and Steven are truly separate personalities because initially she was imagining, you know, you know, Steven, why are you, or Mark, why are you playing with me? Like, I can't tell if you're joking still. And I think to see that on screen, I was just, I was intrigued by, and it it kept me following. Um, That being said, I was going to say, I don't know if I necessarily care for that because, like, I knew I knew from the start of episode three they were starting to put threads of, like, oh, are Steven and Layla going to be a thing? And I'm like, no, that's weird because they're two separate people. I think that's the the conflict of it because then, then I'm curious when Mark talks to Steven, how are they both going to feel about that kind of... Well, Mark is not having it, at least right now. <laughs> Definitely. Um, end of episode four, you are suddenly sitting down and remembering how shocked you were when you watched the finale of Shutter Island because out of nowhere, Mark is in a m- mental uh, hospital, a psychiatric facility, and his his doctor is Ethan Hawke, dun, who we dun. understand to be... And suddenly he looks around and he sees these, I guess you could call them totems or you could call them like 
their plot devices. <laughs> okay, you can scrap that. <laughs> their plot devices that remind him of the scenarios he set up for himself in Egypt, understanding that he was the avatar of Khonshu. So it poses the question, we are already focusing on a protagonist who who suffers from multiple personality disorder. Is this going to dive deeper into that? Just kidding, because we meet another Egyptian god in the form of a hippopotamus. And she, I think, is described to be the guide through the underworld. So she kind of delivers um, souls through the underworld, deciding um, with the help of the weight of their heart, whether they will be judged to enter paradise or they will be doomed to the underworld or the Egyptian equivalent. Um, and that's really the bulk of episode five. The history behind Mark as an individual and really opens the lens for Mark and Stephen to kind of synergize and become one, not without heartache and loss because of things Brandon is going to say. <laughs> Brandon. Episodes fives includes a lot of like heavy emotional weight. Did you find it fitting for the way the story had been going so far? Did you find it abrupt and distracting? You know, I can see it both sides, but I, I'm curious as to what your take was on five. I also didn't recognize that until you just said it, how it could be abrupt of just like, oh yeah, here's this journey. We're going to find Namit's tomb. We're going to stop Harrow. Uh, just kidding. Now I sit down and do therapy. Like I could understand how that would be jarring certain viewers. For me, it's a high point of the series. Minus one thing, and we'll get into it. But I do think it's a high point of the series because it allows us to invest in Mark and Steven's memories and shared experiences. But again, like allowing them to be the most different and examine the most that we've ever seen them in this show. And I think that was, I would hope that was the goal of the show, which is to explain the idea of your experiences matter and you sh and your trauma should be mattering no matter how you are dealing with it. And I like the idea that both Mark and Steven are forced to address their respective really hurtful and insightful memories to each other while having to while having to progress the plot more which i think does take a backseat but when it's there i think it's really interesting particularly the ending i'm so thankful that this wasn't a series that tried to portray like this mental state as just another gimmick of the character moon knight yeah. you know yeah i enjoyed seeing it shift in and out when in the middle of action, but the fact that they took an episode to really explore the trauma that Mark has felt and how that eventually transformed him into these, these different characters, I think was so, was so emotional, so heart heartbreaking for sure. Taking an entire episode of a six episode series revolving entirely around this moon knight who you believe to be like this, um, you know, the, the nighttime superhero with the, with the moon iconography and then realizing that it's actually about like childhood trauma and, um, you know, uh, abuse inside the home and how that affects, uh, this adult's uh, perception of being At the end of episode four and into episode five, they are standout for sure for the series. I'm worried that episode six will, because it has a very like uh, minimal runtime. I think it's only like at 44 or 45 minutes. I'm just curious as to how they're going to wrap it up because I'm still laying the field. Uh, Brandon, what do you have to expect from the show on its finale? I do have two points. I want to get into five, but real quickly, I do want to say, I'm with you. I don't know how they're going to ha handle Haro because up till this point, he has been a very specific kind of villain for both for Mark, Steven and for Layla. And to, I don't want him to be like, Oh, now I'm, you know, I'm its avatar. And like, we're going to have a giant CGI fight. Like, I don't think that would work with this show. I'd much rather it be 
more intense, more mental, maybe not like an astral plane kind of fight, but like something more minimal on that level. So I'm very worried about that, especially when you just told me the runtime. I did not know that. While this series has provided new perspectives for who our protagonist can be in an MCU uh, Disney Plus series, um, don't particularly see Moon Knight fitting in with the larger team on MCU, but I don't think he has to. I think that he is separate to whatever antics are going on, like globally, like celestially. Um, and I mean, you mentioned some Dr. Strange tie in So it, it would be funny if one of them mentioned like, yeah, some weird stuff is going on in Egypt. Like <laughs> that would be fun. I would really not be shocked if in Multiverse of Madness, we hear Wong be like, oh, that thing in Egypt, ah, I don't care. Like that'd be kind of funny. <laughs> like just like he has bigger issues to deal with. I do want to take just a minute to talk about Jewish representation in the show because I think it is really important, especially in episode five. I highly encourage you to go read Alex Zalbin's article, who is a great writer from Decider.com. He did a whole piece about this episode's representation and the sense of Jewish traditions and what it does and doesn't get wrong. I think it's fascinating. For me personally, it is one of the few things that I think the series has kind of missed the ball on. It's not that it's been like bad, that it's been offensive to me as a Jewish person, but there's a whole scene where Mark throws his keep on the ground. And there's a whole religious tradition in regards to that. But he's rejecting the religion of his father, not his mother. His dad has been good to him. His mom is the one who's been abusing him. And I felt like that was kind of a misconstrued emotional point of like, well, if this is somehow like you sticking it to the person who did treat you right, that's kind of mangling your sense of culture and also just the idea of Jewish culture in, in this show. For me, it was a really big issue and I would like to discuss it more, but we don't have time. Brandon, I think it's definitely worth mentioning. If it's something that you feel the series could have hit even more so on the on the head or had done so in a different way, of course, that's why we have that podcast to hold that space and to talk about it. But again, there is one more episode. There is a finale for things to see. We have talked about our predictions. We've talked about the things we want, and we will be reviewing that finale once it comes out in about a week. Uh, actually, if we get it right, it'll be the same episode that we reviewed Doctor Strange on. So maybe we will get that tie in, in there, just a word into existence. That being said, we are going to wrap up episode 26 for you guys. You guys have been with us way too long. And thank you guys so much again for tuning in. While we have you here, uh, do just a quick favor. Twitter, Instagram, uh, and potentially TikTok soon. No, I might get into that. Uh, at Plot Devices Pod, check us all there. Uh, we post tweets and posts and updates on whenever our shows are there. Where can you follow our shows? Well, if you're listening to us, you're probably listening to us on either Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or RSS feed. Why not follow us on all three? You'll get updates to whenever our shows drop and uh, all the shenanigans that come up with that. I also want to give a shout out to our co-host, of course, Mr. Noah Guzman. Noah, where can people find you online and what do you got going on in your life? On Twitter, at Noah's Plotting, I will be making my way to theaters this week with my fellow host here, Brandon, as we are both going to check out Doctor Strange 2 in the Multiverse of Madness, writing review for the Odyssey Online affiliated with ASU's team. So I cannot wait to get that review to you all. And um, otherwise, yeah, like Brandon says, I'm going to try and dive into the social media space of TikTok and see how I can really diversify content here for the pod and try and bring in some more listeners. So if you have any tips for a amateur TikToker, send them my way. You guys can follow me, of course, on Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King 45. That's Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King 45. Follow my work on ASU Odyssey as well. I just had a review out there for the 10th anniversary of Red Tails. I have a couple other things that I have in the works. Uh, follow my recent guest appearance on No Capes Required. We just did the top five movie trailers of all time. That was a really fun discussion. So check out Zero Capes Required on all social media platforms over there. Uh, and follow my band at Cablebox underscore music. At Cablebox underscore music. We have a couple gigs lined up. That being said, my name is Brandon King. That has been Noah Guzman. This has been Block Devices, and we will catch you guys next time.